we didn't have the uh, Bud Friedman album. Oh, this was, this was a fine album. Who is this? Uh, uh, Marion and, no, Marion and uh, Jimmy McPartland. McPartland. Yeah, I gave you the Buddy Hackett, and if you can find something on that, well, maybe a little later. On that. You'll, uh, I don't ordinarily work to uh, Dixie. This is uh, kind of a... Sh- Actually, this isn't Dixie. This is Chicago. Chicago. The one that you just played was Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah. So is this... Uh, this uh, Hackett, too. It is Chicago? Matter of fact, they recorded it on Melrose Avenue, it says. That's well, what that's Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> that sure is Chicago. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've told Candy a lot of the stories about things that happened when we were at uh, WOR together. Uh, uh, one story I've told her, but certainly not in the great detail that you're in a position to tell the story. Uh, Herb Salzman, who is a general manager now of WOR, uh, he was a man who always had some ideas to increase sales. He's really sales-oriented, not as much program-oriented as he is sales-oriented. And this happens in this business. The general manager can be really a former program director or a former sales manager. And uh, certainly we all have admiration for Herb Salzman. But uh, one particular time, and I'm not going to blow the story because I just want to lead into it, and I've had many of these experiences, but uh, Gene Shepard was going to be a judge of a beauty contest. And uh, a limousine is picking him up about 7 o'clock. Uh, a Smith limousine to take him out to this theater where he's going to appear in person. He's a celebrity, a, a big name, no doubt. Uh, hundreds of people will be turned away because Gene will be there to select the beauty of that uh, neighborhood. It was a very, very hot day. Uh, June or July of that particular year, uh, Gene is standing in front of 1440 Broadway in all of his splendor. It is still daylight saving time. The sun is just gradually fading away, and the limousine is about 10 minutes late already. And I stood around and looked up and down the street. See, I'm expecting this limousine. I'm looking for a Cadillac or at least a Lincoln. And uh, it's getting hotter and hotter, later and later. And I realize that at 7 o'clock I'm supposed to be there. That's when the beauty queens were going to make their big appearance. And I was going to judge them along with several other eminent uh, New Yorkers. Incidentally, Candy, uh, have you ever appeared yourself in a beauty contest? Mm-hmm. It's a curious experience to be sitting there, uh, to be sitting in judgment, because mm-hmm. beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I'll tell you what I found out about it that night. It's getting hotter and hotter, and I, I got a little desperate, see, so I finally figured, well, something's going wrong here. And, uh, you know, there's a certain thing you get involved in. Wasn't it Kirsch Beverage sponsoring it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I guess it was some other... Uh, I don't think it was. <laughs> no, uh, that's right. Uh, it was somebody else. Yes. 
But it, it was, I don't recall who sponsored it, actually, to be honest with you. It, uh, it, was, it was such a hellish experience that night that uh, it's, it's almost like a Freudian erasure. You know, you erase certain things that are happening to you, even as they're happening. <laughs> Your mind keeps like a tape recorder. You've got it on erase. <laughs> and it's getting hotter and hotter. And have you ever been involved in a thing which, which was given to you in, in a... a, a it was going to be a grand experience. You know, it was going to be, going to be very elegant. Everything's going to be very show, theater, theatrical, and elegant. And I was kind of looking forward to this for about two or three days. But as this, at this moment, I had a faint premonition, faint input, that something was not quite right. And uh, man is a creature of great instincts. <laughs> he doesn't even have understand them. I know that I, uh, at this moment, I thought, uh-oh, something's going on. And I, and I went back into the station, seeing as well, I better call, because it's already now about quarter to seven, about 20 minutes to seven. So he's going to wait. He's supposed to pick me up about 6.15. And I've been waiting down in front of this, this uh, place for all this time, the people walking by, and traffic is thinning out. So I run back upstairs, and I call Mr. Salzman. And I, I get him on the phone. He says, uh, he says, well, he says, uh, you mean they're not there yet? And I says, no, there's nobody there yet. He says, well, you go down and wait. He says, no, don't, uh, we're counting on you. He says, you know, they really need you out there. It's going to be a big, big event. And I says, well, gosh, what, what, what do I do? And he says, well, well, you go down and wait. He says, they'll be there. So I go down and I wait on the curb. I'm there about five minutes. And I notice parked over by a fire hydrant about a 1953 Dodge that had seen much better times. In fact, this Dodge, uh, I could see the left rear springs broken. Uh, it had, a, it had several large dings on it. Somebody's written a well-known Anglo-Saxon four-letter word in the dust on the rear trunk. And uh, this guy gets out and he, he walks over towards me. And he says, uh, he says, hey, he said, uh, so you are around here? I says, uh, yes. You know, I, did, I never heard of anybody mugging a whole radio station. <laughs> yes, they're here and they're armed. This guy named Shepard around here? And I says, yes. My worst fears had been realized. I was being picked up. Guy says, I'm supposed to pick you up. I says, Oh, you are? Yep. Says, Hurry up, we're late. So I said, Yes, we are. I said, Where you been? He said, I've been waiting around the corner. I says, Well, I was told to meet you here. Says, yeah, but there's no parking here. I says, Yes, it is. And so we got in the car. I got in the back seat, and it was. You know, I tried to pretend it was still a limousine, you know, backseat of this 53 Dodge Coronet, and I sat down, and sprigs were coming out of the seats, and, and uh, I was sitting there, and I, I had a tasty collection of old Rheingold cans in the back there, and up around the, my ankles, you know, a couple of cigar butts, and we took off. And uh, we drove, we headed downtown, see? And so here we are, and I, I'm thinking myself, and incidentally, I have to point out something very salient at this, this very important point. I am wearing a rented tuxedo. Chad had a certain panache to the whole fair. <laughs> and, and 
Here I am. It's broad daylight. I'm riding in the backseat of a 53 Dodge, which had been battered and torn from pillar to post. But I'm riding down there. And people are looking in. You know, we'd stop at a stoplight. Guys would look in there. I'm sitting there with this little... This little I, had a, I had a maroon tie that had clipped on my shirt. Probably on beating to sweat through it. <laughs> And by the way, there was a little there was a little scene at the station about who was going to pay for the rented tuxedo. <laughs> Started the whole thing off on a happy note. So we, we're, we're driving downtown. I figure, you know, everything's under control. So we, we arrived down on some obscure bridge down down way down on the far end of Manhattan, and uh, we start across the bridge. When all of a sudden we're riding in the middle of traffic, the guy hollers over the, over the roar. If bad tappets in this car, by the way, you couldn't hear anything. And it was one of these cars, you know, that that has a muffler that hits a certain resonant frequency. Have you ever been in a car where the muffler's going, and you're hollering over the, you know, the muffler? And he hollers. He said, "Hey, where are we going?" <laughs> it hit me. He doesn't know where we're going. I says, "Well, you're going to take me where the beauty contest is." <laughs> I said, where the hell's that? I says, well, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, got to be over there somewhere, over there, towards Queens. <laughs> he says, well, he says, we'd better find out because we're going to get in the traffic down there by the end of the street. So I'm getting I, I, I frantic. So we get, we get off the bridge. And at that point, I says, well, I, I better make a call, find out where this place is. At this point, he does not know where. He's been told by whoever he works for, just come and pick this guy up. And uh, he was somebody's brother-in-law, by the way. <laughs> Everybody in Queens is somebody's brother-in-law. So we, we, we stopped we stop at the light. I said, wait a minute. So I went into a shell station wearing a rented tuxedo. <laughs> Jump out of this 53 Dodge trying to look like Fred Astaire. And, and, and it ain't easy when you're in this old tin canyon. I did one of the places who jumped over the grease pits, you know, and I ran into the, into the shell station. I says, where's the phone? The guy looks up and he's sitting there, you know, he's drinking a Pepsi or something. He looks up and he says, what the hell? He says, he says where's the wedding, buddy? And he says, well, I, 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 I want the phone. I don't want any jokes. Give me the phone. And he says, over there. So I go over to the phone, you know, it's one of these greasy phones that they have in gas stations, you know, with names written all over it. said Marie and all that great numbers to call. So, <laughs> You know, I figured at that point I'm just going to give up the whole damn thing and call Marie and go away with she. Spend the night in my tuxedo. <laughs> Never come back. <laughs> oh, geez, you know, when you think of the things you have to do, I, we're going to have to answer for a lot when we get up before the bar of justice time. So I called Herb again. <laughs> the grace is all justice, Herb. And he says, why, why, why aren't you at the cockpit? <laughs> I says, Herb, I'm over here at the other end of some bridge in the Shell Station. <laughs> Where is this place? And he says, what do you mean? I says, I, what's, what's the name of the place? Where in the theater? What? She mean, you don't know? <laughs> I says, I don't, Herb. He says, when did I? Right. <laughs> he says, don't leave the phone. I'll find out. <laughs> so at that point, he hangs up. I'm standing in the shell station next to a payphone, wearing a rented tuxedo, and people keep driving in and looking at me. 
<laughs> in those days, they had gas at shell stations, you know, and people would come in. <laughs> <laughs> they'd drive in, and it's it was a little, a little station made out of bricks. It looked like, and, and you can't hide, you know. I'm standing right above the grease pit, and this guy kept hollering out, Will you get out of the ball? I can't wait all day, you know. My wife's waiting for supper. Well, I'm standing there waiting, and then the phone rings. Oh, I pick up the phone. The guy says, is Ernie there? <laughs> I says, well, wait a minute, I'll get Ernie. I says, are you Ernie? He says, yeah. He says, okay, tell him, is that Jaime? I says, are you Jaime? He says, yeah. I says, tell him to wait. <laughs> Jaime, wait. <laughs> And you know, it had, a, it had a certain surreal quality wearing that tuxedo answering the phone at a shell station. <laughs> oh, God, you know. Well, Jaime and Ernie, they were on the phone about 20 minutes. And finally, Ernie hangs up. He says, thanks for answering. If it calls back, tell him I'm gone. I said, okay. So I'm waiting more by the phone. By this time, he's used to me, you know. He asked me if I want a cigarette, you know, when I'm eating a sandwich with him. So, finally, the phone rings again, and it's Herb. Herb says, uh, he says, uh, he says, okay, he says, I got the place. He said, waiting for you. I said, all right, Herb, where is it? He says, well, it's a, uh, um, wait a minute, I wrote it down here. Uh, it's, uh, it's the uh, Little Bijou. He says, on East Queens Boulevard, just off 129th Street, between 129th and 138th Street, he says, under the L. I said, okay, little Biju, East Queens Boulevard, just along in 29th Street. So I go back into the car. I says, uh, take me to the little Biju, my good man. <laughs> he's really bummed by this time. This guy's sitting there smoldering. Absolutely, he's been running out of the car every five minutes while he's been waiting, running across the street to a place called the Bluebird. <laughs> he ain't the drinking wine gold. I can tell you that's started, nor Kirsch. <laughs> he comes back in and he sits and he says, Where do you want to go? I says, Take me to the little Bijou Theater. <laughs> what the hell's that? I said, Well, it's off Queens, East Queens Boulevard between 129th and 130th Street. It's under the L, stupid. He says, okay, all right, I'll take it. He said, what's in it first? And we start going down the street. It's now, by the way, about quarter to eight. I was supposed to be there at seven. And I'm, have you ever been involved in something that has gone so disastrous that now you're beginning to enjoy it? Mm. <laughs> you know, and it's just like guys get to enjoy wars after a while. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in the back seat, sitting and I'm counting the gum wrappers, around, and, and we go up and down side streets. Now, quarter after eight, and sure enough, we finally pull up before one of the saddest little neighborhood theaters. And I'd, I've been expecting something. I had to elegance, you know, the, the Roxy or something. Here's this little theater next to a meat market. <laughs> and would you believe it or not, on the, on the marquee, they had beauty contests tonight. And it says... Uh, WNEW star Dick Shepard appearing in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew it had to happen. <laughs> and, and incidentally, this, this theater was so sad that the other side they shared with the meat market. It's the bacon, 79 cents a pound, you know, on the marquee. 
So I walk up to the up to the lady and said, "There's a little old lady sitting in the box office." And I says, uh, "I'm Dick Shepard from WHW. By now, I'm going to go with it." So she says, "Oh, they've been waiting for you." And I says, "Yeah, well, all right." I says, "What do you do?" She says, "Well, I go right in." So I walk into the theater. And if I've ever seen a scene which haunts me, comes back like like have you ever had a bag of slightly bad potato chips? They tend to taste, you can taste them for weeks. Well, this scene is like that. I walked into the theater, and you know, these old theaters have a real smell to them. I mean, the seats are thick with ancient gum. I mean, there, were, there was gum in the bottom of those seats that had been chewed and popped by teenagers when Rudolph Valentino was taking a teen of a screen test, you know. There it was. You could smell cigar butts and tennis shoes and everything, and I walk in, it's there. And there's about, outside, maybe 75 people scattered around the house. <laughs> and I'm wearing a tuxedo. And I, I stop by the door. There's a guy standing there taking tickets. I says, when is the beauty contest? He says, what do you want to know? <laughs> you an inspector? I says, no, I'm not an inspector. I'm going to judge the beauty contest. Oh. He says, okay. He says, just a minute. He says, I'll, I'll get out. I wait in the darkness, and I could see this flickering image on the screen. They were looking at an ancient Chester Morris movie or something up there. And I'm waiting, and the guy suddenly appears out of the darkness. He says, hey, you, Shepard? I says, yeah. He says, okay, let's go. He says, follow me. He grabs a hole in my coat, and we run through the darkness. And now we're backstage. We're in the backstage of a neighborhood theater in Queens. Fantastic. Old, battered popcorn machines are sitting back there, you know. Ancient stars of that theater. And there's about nine girls waiting to go on. And I arrive with my tuxedo. And these girls are all nervous, and they're wearing bathing suits. You know, Alexander's best. And uh, <laughs> they're all waiting, and I have never seen a collection. I, I formed an idea that, uh, that night that the people who are drawn to beauty contests either are beauties or they're totally the opposite. <laughs> it's just like, have you ever sat in on an announcer's audition? Well, out of, out of ten guys that walk in, five have pronounced speech defects. <laughs> if you notice that, I mean, really. I remember one guy auditioning in an audition that I sat in on for a staff announcer who was to do station breaks, and he couldn't pronounce W. <laughs> I'm serious. He would say, Corbo, the one thing an answer has to say is W. We could say B or C, but he couldn't say W. And the name of the station was WLW. Can you imagine this? So this here's two short little fat girls who look like cantaloupes with feet. And there was another one that looked exactly like a hat rack. <laughs> I've never seen a hat rack wearing band-aids. <laughs> and you know, one was amazing. Well, one girl, one girl, are you, did you ever watch Dick, did you ever read Dick Tracy? Yeah. One girl looked exactly like the mole. 
A long, narrow face with a mustache on the end. See, and and and. <laughs> with that, Al walks out on the stage. He's got a checkered coat, and all of a sudden they turn the film off, and on comes the light, and he's out there with this this double button carbon mic. Well, it's a collector's item, you know. And, uh, he says, "Ladies and gentlemen," he says, "Time now for the first semi-final of our great beauty contest. We have beauties from all over Queens have assembled here tonight, and to." Uh, to judge, we have uh, we have uh, Dick Shepard from WNEW. Here he is, Dick Shepard. When I walk out of the stage, you hear a, a, a murmur of, of uh, angry mutterings. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I walk back off the stage. And the other two guys are introduced. By the way, one of whom has gone on to become one of the most famous talk shows. He was there, too, the three of us. Thing. All badly introduced. And... Al says, okay, he says, now our, our guests are going to sit in the front row and are going to judge the beauties. So we sat down there in front with three of us wearing tuxedos. <laughs> and with that, they put on a record. I mean, everything was done with exquisite slob taste. <laughs> you know, that's a talent. I, I, I must say, uh, slob art is a talent. And on through the PA system played on this crystal pickup, John, with fantastic hiss. It sounded like Wayne King. I mean, whoever, yeah, I, I thought Wayne King records had dissolved millions of years ago. On came Wayne King and his golden saxophone playing. A pretty girl is like a melody. And these nine girls walked out of the stage. Again, the slob art technique was at its fullest. They had a lime green light. <laughs> this is the very light that Bela Lugosi used in playing Dracula to such effect. And these girls came out, they looked unbelievable. They looked like, you know, the... You know, <laughs> <laughs> they have been resurrected. <laughs> and there they were on the stage. With that, the audience starts to holler. And there was sitting there, and these poor girls are walking back and forth. And Al says, now, here is Carmelita Glockenspiel, 129th Street and 4th Avenue. Give Carmelita a big hand. And about three guys clapping. I'm sitting down here, and we're supposed to be making noise. And I turned to the guy next to me who was, as I said, now a famous... You don't want to mention names. I do not want to mention names. I says, uh... I says, Johnny? He says, yeah. I says, how the hell do we get out of this? He says, I know what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to fill out the form and run my cow. I says, what I'm going to do, too. And so we sat there in the darkness. We're filling out our forms. It was academic as to who was the most beautiful. And, you know, I said, hey, Johnny, I'm going to vote for the hat rack. <laughs> he says, I'm going all the way with the alligator. <laughs> 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 we, we turned in our three ballots, and it was a dead heat between three people, the alligator, the mole, and the hat rack. <laughs> so they went on into the semifinal. <laughs> There was a great roar of applause. And, you know, the 75 assembled people. Right? Back out in, the, in that 53 Dodge. 
And this time I'm with Johnny and with this other guy, a guy named Mel. We drove under the L and we headed back to Manhattan. Dead silence. And I said to the guy who was driving, I says, wait a minute. I says, I want to make a phone call. Stop right here at the Shell station. I walked in, and here's Ernie sitting there. He says, hey, he says, how are you? I said, I was waiting. <laughs> I said, oh, fine. I said, I said, let me use the phone again. So I called up Herb, and I said, Herb? He says, yeah. I said, Herb, I said, I did it. He says, how was it? Was it exciting? Boy, you guys live a great life, watching all those girls and all that stuff. I said, Herb, I'm going to send you out on the next one. I said, I'll tell you one thing. The alligator won. <laughs> so you'll be seeing her picture in the subways. Semi-final winner. I hung up. And I've never forgotten that night because it had so many elements of surreal Nathaniel West. And, it, and from that time on, Herb and I have never mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. Oh, yeah. Then the night, then the time I was sent out to the, I'll never forget the time I was sent out. You go through some unbelievably embarrassing moments in showbiz. Like the night I was sent out, uh, this was some time ago, to the opening of a supermarket out in Jersey. And I arrived. They told me, you know, they, they really want you out there. The whole thing. Seemed. So I arrived out at the supermarket. Were you involved in that one, John? Yes, I went. Uh, uh, and the guy didn't know who we were. Yeah, well, I, we were out there. No, I went out with Mr. Salzman in his convertible. And I had uh, a bar mitzvah suit on to make a good appearance. <laughs> and uh, so Salzman is confused. <coughs> He's driving around. And they're constructing a new food fair store. The glasses in the windows and uh, shelves are being installed. And uh, if we waited for the grand opening, it would have been about six weeks later. So he inquired, and we found out we were not coming to the grand opening of a supermarket. Uh, we were supposed to be at another food fair uh, which was like two miles down the line that was celebrating their first anniversary. So we got to this uh, shopping area, and uh, I would say maybe there were about 30 or 40 cars there, but not for food fair. Uh, possibly the manager of the food fair's car was there and some of the other merchants who were opening their stores at that time. Well, I saw these big signs on the window, lamb chops, 79 cents a pound, and a couple of other things like that. I didn't notice anything about Long John appearing there in person. <laughs> yeah. So now, uh, Salton says, don't worry, it's, it's all set. It'll be a big deal. Big, big reception, and I didn't want to make this scene at all. So now when we walk over to the entrance of the store, there's a little eight and a half by 11 card, which was an advertisement for something on one side, but they had turned it over so they had the back, and then crayon, they said, Long John will appear here Tuesday at 10 o'clock. 
Uh, it was the same type of sign that it gives you the manager's name in case of an emergency call. You know? <laughs> so I walk in, and there's about six women with shopping carts and curlers in their hairs, in their hair, and uh, the manager is uh, called, and he comes over and he gives me a double warm handshake, both hands. He clasps my hand and he shakes it graciously and uh, firmly and he said we're really delighted to have you here and he said I was talking to my wife at dinner last night and she was saying that you are so different from other broadcasters <laughs> well at least I knew I had one fan and uh, my wife said to me your choice of music that you play on your show is so great. And uh, my wife listens to you every night at 8 o'clock. Of course, I'm on at midnight and never played any music. It's a talk show. So now he tells me that I should walk around and talk to the people with their shopping carts. And Salzman is sort of hiding, you know, in the shadows of the door there because he knows we're really bombing out. Now, I said to Salzman, and I went to him, I said, what do you want me to say? He said, just say, I'm Long John, how are you? And I did this to about four women, and it didn't impress them at all. One woman asked me where the less toil was. You know, I guess she thought I was the new assistant manager or something. Now, when we're ready to leave, which was around 12 minutes later, the manager thanked me for helping to make this celebration of the first uh, year that they've been in business a great success. And he had a little gift for me. And he said, I know you possibly enjoy great steaks. These are our best. And uh, these are 98 cents a pound or something like that. And he had two steaks wrapped up. And I said, no, no, thank you. Salton said, I'll take them for you, John. <laughs> and that was the end of our tour. Well, you know, it's funny, Candy. I, I, I see this. This is, a, this is a, I don't know whether you've ever had any of those fantastically humiliating things, but... Uh, it isn't only in, in uh, you might say, broadcasting. It's all areas. Like last year, I was out in, uh, I was out in Albuquerque, and uh, I was there for a specific reason, obviously. And and uh, I was with some people, and we went into a a drive-in, mm -hmm. uh, like a McDonald's. And you know, there's people driving in and out. And I go into the into the into the McDonald's with the guy to get a couple of quarter pounders, and I see this guy sort of looking furtive standing over in the corner there saying and uh, I I, uh, I walked over and got in line and, and, and waiting for the quarter pounders and, and I turned to him he looked for me and I said say don't I know you and he said well uh, I don't know he looks away and I said of course I said you're Anthony Quinn I said what the hell are you doing here he said well I'm supposed to be signing autographs <laughs> <laughs> How he ever got sent to a McDonald's, I have no idea, but it was for some cockamamie movie that they were premiering there, and somebody got a, a half-baked idea that as Johnson's bombed out, and there he is, stuck. Well, then, I'll add it to another one. One day, I'm down in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, now, Fort Lauderdale 
Is, uh, have you ever been down there? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a federal highway. It's a great big highway that runs right along through there. And Number one. Yeah, it's a big highway, and, and uh, I, I, I needed something for the car that I was driving. It was a great big discount house there. Like It looked like, uh, was Kmart. You know, you remember Kmart? These are big discount houses, gigantic buildings. They look like airplane hangers. Mm-hmm. And I go into this Kmart, this 50 million cars in the driveway, and I walk into the place, and I go all the way in the back where they're selling tire jacks and, you know, stuff like that, you know, uh, the lawnmower sharpeners and all kinds of junk back there. And they had sporting equipment, all of the people wandering around, and there's a guy standing next to the counter there, and he's, he's, he's just sort of standing with kind of sheepish, you know, big, huge guy, and I walk up to him. And uh, he says, uh, do you like an autograph? <laughs> I was going to ask him what his spark plugs were. I says, well, no, I hadn't come in for an autograph. I said, if you're giving them out, you know, what the hell, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, he was kind of sheepish. He says, what do you want me to autograph? I says, well, I don't care. Uh, you know, if I had a cast, you could autograph that. But he says, uh, but what he got? I said, well, uh, I had a paper, the Fort Lauderdale News. And so I said, yeah, you can autograph this. He said, all right. So he writes down, Frank Howard, Washington Senators. You know, Frank Howard, the famous yeah. home run hitter. So I said, Frank Howard, you're Frank Howard. And he says, yeah. He said, uh, they sent me over here to sign autographs. <laughs> I says, but nobody's here. He says, why? He says, I want to be here another half hour. <laughs> and I says, oh, God, you know, the humiliation. Here's a guy, you know, the $100,000 a year ball player, and he's got to stand around in some, some discount house. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had one experience at Bookmasters. Next to, I think it was the George M. Cohen Theater. And Bookmasters at that time was open all night. And the first book that I wrote was now out in paperback. And uh, I was supposed to go there. Well, it was one of the worst snowstorms. In fact, it was so bad that they couldn't even keep the doors shut. And they had uh, a card table there in the front. And I walked over there with, I don't know, Paris Flamand or somebody like that. And there's no one on the street, and there's no one in the store. But they have a tremendous supply of my new paperback, six, uh, which are there to be autographed. Well, I sat there freezing cold, and I have to get back to WOR, which is a short distance, but it would take a good 15 minutes to walk back because of the snowstorm. And eventually, a little elderly lady, who should have never been out in that storm, comes in. She didn't have to open the door. The wind did it for her. And I am sitting there, freezing cold. Snow, even on my card table by now, that had drifted in. And she said, are you Long John? I said, yes, I am. It's the only person who came in and asked for me. They did have a... A rather small sign. It was larger than at the supermarket. It was about 11 by 14 stuck in the corner of the window. And 
And uh, she said, can I look at the book? And she did. I thought she was reading the entire book, that she didn't quite complete it. And I said, well, I have to leave. Do you want to get one? Do you want me to autograph it? She said, no, I, I just wanted to see what you look like. And she thanked me very much, and she disappeared into the night out in the snowstorm. And I disappeared. And the manager, no one came over, no one said a word. And Paris and I, through the slushy snow and all, went back to W.O.R. Not one single autograph was given for one of the books. Well, one time down in uh, Richmond, Virginia, there was a book author dinner. You've heard of book author dinners. Many of them. Right. And at this particular one, um, Philip Wiley, the late Philip Wiley, was one of the authors. And the daughter of uh, Marcus Child, whose first name I can't recall, but she had a book out, and myself um, were to appear in the local bookstore. And they had a big hoodinky before the dinner that night and a cocktail party and so forth. And we went in, and with the exception of the salespeople, no one. And they had signs. They had a great big tent sort of thing standing outside, a placard, you know, this type of thing. And I noticed that Phil Wiley sat down at a table, and we each had our own table with books piled up, and he sat down and immediately started writing, except there's nobody in the store he's autographing. And I learned a lesson from that particular thing. Anytime you go into a store for a, an autographing party or a book appearance, you immediately sign and I went over to see what he was writing because I couldn't see any people. There weren't any. He was writing Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday. And he left space for the name of the person, Philip Wiley. Well, with the autograph in the book, the store cannot send the books back to the publisher. Yeah, that's true. It's our best stock, yeah. So that we all got the same message, and we all sat there, and I think maybe there were three books sold, and I think they were Phil Wiley's the whole afternoon, but we signed those books fast and well, furiously. I've had a lot of good experiences, though, in book signings. I, I just yeah. had one, yeah. I've really had some big ones. I had, <clears throat> in fact, I remember uh, uh, probably the most successful book signing that I've ever been involved in was at Wanamaker's in Philadelphia. We had about I've done that one too. About 1,500 yeah. people there. Uh, they have the lunch for you first. Yeah. You Upstairs know, in the uh, very well executive yeah. uh, dining room. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> I guess a lot of stores don't realize that that uh, you have to you have to produce a book signing just like you produce a show. Uh, you have to really put it on. What's the fellow's name there? Weatherby or? Yeah, he's the manager. Yeah, he's right. the man who Excellent. handles a great man. Right. Handles very bad, very, very well. If your publisher uh, and if the books come from the PR department, if someone in that department might happen to forget to send the books, it's rather embarrassing. You know, that's one of the biggest problems today in, in publishing is distribution. I believe that. I've had that happen time I mean, and again. And, and, and it's, a, it's a tough problem because uh, uh, all over the country, uh, now, now Wanda Hickey has just come out in paperback, and Dell is one of the biggest paperback publishers. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I get letters from people. I've gotten letters already 
saying, uh, I live in uh, X city, and uh, they haven't got your book. They can't find it, and they never heard of it. Think and of going to a publishing party for your own book, I mean, uh, an autographing party, and they don't, party, and they don't even have the book. That's happened to me. It happened to me in Seattle. Uh, we had a, had a very bad situation where I was sent out to Seattle by uh, Doubleday. This is when uh, In God We Trust came out. Now, that was a bestseller candy on the bestseller list for, oh, 17 weeks national. And really legitimate. You know, they, every book today is called a bestseller. You you pick up, uh, you know, every ad says uh, the, the bestseller about to be published. They don't call them bestsellers before they even know. But actually, there's only a few books that actually make the national list. For example, Wanda Hickey here was on uh, the Time Magazine bestseller list which is a national list, uh, one of the most difficult to make. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I got out to, here I was, I was on the bestseller list at that time, but in God we trust, we were already in our sixth or seventh edition. And I arrived out at the airport, it was a real strange moment, and uh, this woman met me at the airport, and she said, uh, I uh, I'm, I'm represent the university. University of Washington here, and she said we were going to have a big party for you here, uh, but uh, we can't get any copies of your book. She says, I have the only copy in town. And I said, where'd you get it? She said, well, I had to go to Portland <laughs> to get it. And, and, and so we went to the TV station. I was on the road on TV, and here I was being interviewed by a guy for on an hour show. Very embarrassing. He didn't have a copy of the book. Mm. And I wonder how many people realize that that book, uh, books are, are difficult to distribute. And, and, in fact, one of the reasons is that most bookstores today are in the Snoopy sweatshirt business. Mm -hmm. uh, the books are a sideline now in most bookstores. And posters. Posters, they sell uh, Lucy note paper. Calendars. Uh, Charles Schultz is an entire industry now. He's taken over, uh, you know, right. uh, you know, and way in the back in the book department, after you pass the uh, Big Daddy banana pick pens and mm -hmm. stuff, you may find a few symbolic books. Uh, One thing is that, oh, are you doing something? I, I do have to. I'm a I'm little sorry. late on okay. that. back here again. This is the Long John Neville Candy Jones Show, and our guest tonight is Gene Shepard. You know, I really enjoy this, John. I, I like to just sit around and, as you say, cut up a melon. That's right. Uh, this, this, kind of, uh, this kind of radio is, to me, very attractive. Yeah. And I we think the listeners it. like it, too. We enjoy it very, very much. I think after a little while we will open the phones for... Do you slice up any melons anymore these days? Yeah, we cut up a few jackpots. Uh, <laughs> like last night, uh, uh, this uh, man, uh, Nick Kendall... Uh, Kendall. Kendall, rather, who was doing a, uh, a story, was just sitting here. He had been interviewing me for, I guess, some 20 or 30 minutes before. And we had Bob Carson on and David Schulte. And uh, somehow there was an opportunity to throw him in in an empty chair. And he participated and kind of enjoyed it and got uh, a little feeling of the a taste of the flavor of the 
show, which is pretty hard to get if you're sitting on the sideline or listening at home. You really don't know what happens and how the whole thing goes. Yes. But he had said he had been a, a broadcaster and in television. In the Orient. Yeah. Yes. He had been for uh, okay. 12 years in the Orient. Uh, no, in Hong Kong. Excuse me, yes. I had just said in Japan, but it was in Hong Kong. John, have you you worked with Buddha Gap recently? (laughs) No, I haven't uh, for a number of years. Uh, My last uh, appearance uh, was in Hammond, Indiana. Have you used the the Punkum Gap at all? No. Flukum. Flukum. No. No, I've... uh, You know that John invented a razor sharpener? A razor Yes, shot. he did. Uh, there was a moment when it was Tap City with John. And as you know, John is a man of exceeding uh, resources. Right. Fantastic. Uh, you, trapping John is about le- like trapping a water rat. Uh. He can swim, he can run, he can bite, he can do anything. And John was, was Tap City in a, in a second-rate hotel here in New York. And uh, really down on the rubbers. A fourth-rate, fourth-rate hotel. <laughs> I he gradually worked up to the second. <laughs> he was wearing the Daily News editorial page as the soles of his shoes, and he's sitting there right up against the wall, and he's looking bleakly around the room, trying to figure out how he can eke a dollar out of this world. And he notices hanging in the closet some empty coat hangers, wire coat hangers, empty wire coat hangers, and. Of course, that's about all John ever had in his closets in those days, and he got an idea. So he went downstairs, and he had maybe thirty-five cents in his pocket. Went down to one of these uh, these uh, places where they sell all kinds of novelties and so on, and he bought himself a bag of marbles, marbles, glass marbles. And he came back to the hotel room with a pair of pliers. And 15 minutes later, John had created 25 razor sharpeners using bent wire coat hangers and marbles. And five minutes later, he's down on 14th Street hawking them at a dollar a clip. And within, within 25 minutes, John has made $74, packed his little bag, and departed for Charlton, West Virginia. I'm telling you the truth. But, but how did the marble thing work? Well, happen? John took two marbles. He took yeah. two marbles, and you, 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 take the, you take the wire coat hanger, and you, you, you make two little hooks like circles, see? And you fit, the, you fit the marbles in together, so the marbles are just touching. Yes. And, and the coat hangers hold them together. Yeah. At which point, then, you take a double-edged razor blade and you run it between the marbles. And it works? You're darn right it works. I'll be darned. The police department took a dim view of it. He had many friends. I've heard about the mendicant squad. He had many friends on the mendicant squad. Well, they come in here occasionally today and see whether John is running a job. They come in as a guest. You say. And, uh, you know, the idea of John sitting in a hotel room dreaming up a concept like that, you know. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. And then the time, the time John uh, invented the... Uh, did he ever tell you about the time he invented the, the beauty cream? The beauty cream? No. Oh, yeah. I, I wish he had. I'd like to use it. Well, you wouldn't exactly like to use this beauty cream, but it, it turned a nice buck for John. And he, uh, again, it was a hotel room situation that developed outside of Atlantic City. And uh, John is sitting there, and and uh, it was Tap City. There it is. 
John brought in one of his... There, he brought one of them in. I've never seen it. Uh, well, God, I had to get... I just did. I couldn't have found it. I'd have been disappointed. Fantastic, John. He Actually, brought in what happened was a lady who was a fan of the show as a joke uh, sent it back to me for a refund. She realized <laughs> it's that... It's a lifetime guarantee John offered those. That's people. right. Yeah. So the outcome of it is... I sent her my check for 25 cents, and I understand she has it framed. Isn't that something? Now, eventually, I had a patent pending on it, and then I went to a wire company and had them make it. I used to do this by hand, twisting this with a long nose plier, and, of course, I hadn't selected the marbles. I'd just buy a bag of marbles. Yeah, they'd come in any color. Yeah, and uh, so they were uh, a mixture. Then, when, when you get a real tough day, uh, you would work some for a half a dollar by selecting the color of the marbles. This is for super sharp. <laughs> <laughs> the green ones were the, 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 they were the ones that were That's really right, good. that's yeah. right. There it is. Oh, my, there is such a thing, and it's beautiful. Well, Could we? you, Candy. Well, no, no, these are not... These are not apocryphal, are they, Jim? No, no, they're all based on fact. And, done. and I was fiddling around trying to figure how. Then I made a form... I, I think it was a piece of two-by-four, and uh, I can't think of the type of the nail. It doesn't have a head on, headless nail. Finishing nails, right? Yeah, finishing uh, nails. Finishing right. nails. So I got, I forget what pound weight, like uh, whether they were ten penny what, but they had to be strong. And I made a design, and I would put my wire, and of course I didn't have money for wire after I made my first one, so I had to take... Uh, the uh, wire that I had, and that's pretty tough to bend. That's coat hanger. The coat hanger wire. So then I would start it like here, I forget, and then I would follow around and bend it around these very, uh, maybe I'm wrong when I say ten penny, but they were real oh, heavy nails, finishing yeah. nails, so I could slip the whole thing off. Now, if it had a head, I'd have to bend it out of shape again and put it back in shape. And... Uh, I used to make these and knock out maybe at night about maybe two dozen. That's all I could produce. And uh, assembly line up in the hotel room number twelve. That's right in the old Carmack <laughs> Hotel. It was a great place. They had uh, hot and cold running water, and you were very fortunate because you would always have cold water out of both faucets. <laughs> but in order, of course, if you were washing your hands, you would always use the one marked H because it gave you a sensation that it was... But it wasn't. <laughs> it was just the same water. I, and, uh, I'd wash my yeah, hands yeah. up here at this moment. Then rinse with cold water. <laughs> Candy, you know, uh, you strike me as a girl who's lived a somewhat elegant life. And, and, and I can only say that... that uh, Living as John has done and as I have done in a in a two bit theatrical hotel in the Times Square area for roughly a year will teach you more than you can learn in all the combined universities of the world. And I remember living in a hotel room for one solid year on 49th Street that had been painted so many times with this battleship gray paint that the walls were like four or five inches 
closer to you. <laughs> just because, and you could see that they, they'd even painted over a dead bat and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. And, 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 and hanging in the middle of the, of the room was, was, a, was a green cord with a yellow light bulb. That was my entire illumination. Yeah. And there was a window. I had a window, but the window was permanently sealed by like 200 years of accumulated dust and crud and God knows what, paint and everything else. And the window was, 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 a, was a curious color gray, and it looked out into the air shaft. And at nights, I was really tap city, as John says. I can remember one night going down to the, you know that, that uh, drugstore at 49th and, uh, is it, no, it's 50th and Broad. Graves? No, Walgreens. Oh, was down around. The Walgreens was there. Yeah, Walgreens, yeah. And I walked into Walgreens one night. I was so, so down that I walked in there and I stood in front of the candy counter. And I, I had a long debate. There were candy bars for six cents and they had candy bars for ten cents. And I was debating whether or not, what the hell, it was Thanksgiving, go all the way. Get a ten cent. I'm serious, and I bought a ten cent candy bar. And I remember coming back to that room <laughs> and looking through this gray glass, and you saw nothing but this damn airship. There was never any. It was not never daytime, never night there. It's always this gray color. And once in a while, something would whistle past the window. <sighs> something going down in the edge of here. <laughs> what well, was it? It's a beer can or a hand grenade or something going past. <laughs> and it would land down, and, 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 and down at the bottom of the air shaft was this accumulated midden heap. <laughs> uh, you know, an archaeological term would have been started about the time of Diamond Jim Brady. And, and it was thick, you know. I, I often wondered if you could just cut this midden heap right in half, you know. And, and you could you could trace the the whole ages of the American the American theater right from the you know one of Lillian and Russell slippers still yeah. smelling of champagne and down in the bottom and all the way up the top and once in a while you did strange things would go to go through this air shop and I'm sitting there one night and and it was about maybe about 11 12 o'clock at night midnight and uh, that was academic it was, a, it was never, you know, night, day, it was all the same. When all of a sudden I hear, whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, this was a new sound. There were, there were other sounds that were going on constantly in the halls there, you know. You'd hear the sound of the, the thud of a blackjack occasionally. Yeah, you really would. And then you'd hear the mysterious scuffle. Occasional cryings in the hall, you know, people. Yeah, you were really with me. You hear a muffled scream. You've been in places like oh, that, Jack. Mm. And you, you know, you mind your own counsels. But I heard this oop, oop, oop. What was it? Well, that's what the first. That was the question that occurred to me. What was it? See, so I walk out in the hall. I look up and down. <laughs> dark. These halls, by the way, totally dark. They had one little. Red light bulb down no. at the other end of the, the fire egg. Bomb and fire The fire egg was academic. It was painted on the wall. There <laughs> <laughs> was never a fire in there. You went with the car. There was no door or anything. No. Just the, the bulb down there. So, so I hear, oop, oop. So I go downstairs. See, I go down to the desk, and here's Jimmy sitting at the desk. There's always. There's always a guy that's been there for you know a hundred years. He settles. He sells everything. 
I mean, if, once you get to be a regular, you can buy anything. You know, Arabian slave girls, whatever you want. You know, Jimmy's got it. See, so I said to Jimmy, I said, Jimmy. He said, yes. I said, up on the second floor there, I said, there's something in the hall. It's going, oop. He said, well, that's Oliver. I said, Oliver? He says, yeah, he says, he lets them out usually about this time of the night. And I says, what well, lets out what? He says, well, go back up there. And he says, and go past room 202 and knock on the door. And he'll let you in. So I says, okay. So I go back up to room 202 and knock on the door. The door opens a little cracks. And the guy looks at me and he says, what do you want? And I says, are you Oliver? He says, yeah, what do you want? I says, well, I'm down here at 212. He says, yeah, what do you want? And all of a sudden, I hear back of him, oop, oop. I says, what are, what's the oop, oop? He says, well, that's Jimmy and Fred. And I says, Jimmy and Fred. He says, yeah, come on in. He was living with his two seals. He had two trained seals. And, 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 and out of work act. He's an out of work act, and he's got his two seals, see, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, he would sneak down to the cafeteria and steal old cabbages and bring them back up and they'd eat them, see. So these two seals, about once or twice a week, they would practice. And the seals would play Columbia, the gem on the ocean. Your horn. Yeah, that's right. And they'd go, boop, 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 boop. And then once a while, they I sat with Jimmy, Jimmy and Fred while, while Oliver went up to the country to visit his sister. And I, I babysat the seals. <laughs> so, you know, you'll learn about life. I mean, this is the kind of stuff Johnny Carson doesn't know. <laughs> you know, up your dream, John? Oh, yes. You know, actually, the Kermack Hotel, when I was at the Paramount Theater, uh, the Kermack must have been a pretty good, uh, let's say, second-rate or transient hotel at one time because they had a magnificent big room downstairs that had been an elegant dining room with mirrors on the wall. And how I became acquainted with it was a guy by the name of Buster Holt who was a doorman at the Paramount Theater. And uh, he told me that his buddy who was living with them, they both came out of some small community in Massachusetts, a fellow by the name of Ken Bilson, was practicing banjo. <laughs> so I, in turn, met this man. Of course, the hotel was really right down at the bottom at the time. We, and so we got permission uh, to use that dining room, which was closed off to everybody, but we had heard about it. And we could work doing this dance routine and playing banjos in front of the mirror so we could practice. It was a great floor. It had a lot of spring in it, and you could get the double and triple taps and things like that. It was just marvelous. And, of course, we had planned to appear at the Palace Theater in its heyday. Uh, we didn't. We just continued to it week after week in the balcony for 35 cents. But we had really planned, although the management of the palace were unaware of our plans and so naturally never negotiated the contract with us. Just a matter of... That's right. A lack of communications. And so we didn't do it. 